Hello, and welcome to the Equity Foundation podcast. The Equity Foundation is the professional development arm of Actors' Equity. Our mission is to assist, educate, and inspire performers. To find out more, visit www.equityfoundation.org.au. I'd first of all like to say happy birthday to Equity and for their extraordinary um, efforts in what they do for our industry. So thank you very much uh, to Equity. (laughs) Uh, I'm delighted to moderate this discussion about the craft of acting, about techniques, various approaches to the work, the differences between them, and indeed where they have common ground. I'd like to introduce you to our three panellists. First of all, Christine Landon-Smith, who joined the faculty of NIDA last year as a lecturer in acting. Previously, he spent 22 years as the founder and artistic director of Tamasha, theatre company in the UK, which is one of the largest touring companies. And before that, she was the senior producer at the BBC Radio Drama. She is currently writing her master's on intracultural theatre practice. Welcome, Christine. And Ian Maxwell, who is an Associate Professor of Performance Studies at the University of Sydney. Ian is a graduate of the Victorian College of the Arts, where he majored in directing. He has published extensively on a range of topics about theatre and the craft of acting. He is currently involved in leading the Actors' Wellbeing Research Project in collaboration with Equity Foundation. Welcome. And finally, Dean Carey. Uh, Dean is the creative and founding director of the Actors' Centre Australia. He has also been the head of acting at both WAPA and NIDA. He's taught for over 33 years in countries all over the world and has written four wonderful books on the craft of acting. Welcome. (laughs) I think we all understand such a topic, uh, we can't do very much justice to it in the short space of time, but we'll certainly do our best to have somewhat of a conversation about various approaches to the work. I'd like to ask as two acting teachers, Christine and Dean, if you could talk about your approach to the craft of acting, methods or techniques you use, and who they have been informed by. First of all, Christine. Oh, okay. Um, Yes, well, I mean, it is a big subject, so... (laughs) It'll be hard to cover this, but let me just um, say a few things. So basically, I think what I try to do is, I think, um, you know, I've observed over so many years that I think people come to rehearsals with a lot of sort of culture assumptions, and culture assumptions around the rehearsal room. What is it for me to be the perfect, you know, NIDA actor? What is it, what what am I meant to be to be the perfect Sydney Theatre Company actor? And I think there's a lot of second guessing goes on. And often I think actors can, in that moment, Um, mimic the authority that they're working with. So so this is something I'm very um, aware of and um, I try and set a culture in the rehearsal room when we're all just coming together for the first time. I mean, I do, I guess, place my uh, work so that people understand in the sort of continuum of actor training. And I guess over time as well, I have observed Well, look, for me, so many methods like Stanislavski, Meissner, all these things, they have very specific things that you say to the actor, look, if you do this, this is how you will achieve, you know, truth 
or whatever it is. I mean, I think all of our, our methods are still looking for the same thing, you know, truthful performance as the actor in action um, that we can believe immediate spontaneous. But I find a lot of these methods, and Stanislavski himself said this in the later parts of his career, he said, look, I find that I'm giving so much to the actors, emotional memory, given circumstances that they come to the stage with their heads stuffed with stuff. And that is why later he dropped some of his, the method, and went to active analysis. So I guess I am situated, I too feel that. I think actors can come stuffed, their heads stuffed. Um, and what it then prevents is the real um, ability just to play very well together, achieve a great complicité, and for the actor to play as themselves. So I guess what I do is I don't put the text or character first, I put the actor first. And I look at the actor and try and find how to find ways to make the actor open and play well together. And in that moment, I believe that then um, everything can drop in and the actor can be open enough to hear the inherent rhythms of the particular texts. Now, I did always work like this, but many years ago, I guess I started really articulating and understanding my own practice when I began to study with Philippe Gollier. Philippe Gollier is, is a great pedagogue from um, France. He brought his school to the UK and then took it back to France. And I began um, studying with him. And Philippe bases his practice around the game, le jeu. And I mean, I know we all say, you know, Obviously, it's normal for the actor to play well, but Philippe, of course, realized that actually it's not that simple. And to relearn to play as the child we once were is, in fact, quite a forensic study. And through that forensic examination, I guess um, that is where my um, work is now situated. And just the last thing to say is within that, so looking at the actor, helping the actor to play well with you know, forensic study and therefore exercises, if you like, or games or conversation to help that. Within that, my particular area of interest is in um, looking at the diasporic heritage, the indigenous, all the voices, and of course Anglo, but all the voices that make up our society so that how, how can theatre become something that is much more reflective of the societies in which we live? And so I guess within this thing of um, going uniquely to the actor, I also include the cultural context of an actor. So if an actor is British Vietnamese, I explore with them on the rehearsal floor, whether it's in a Chekhov or Shakespeare, whatever it is, their British Vietnamese personality. And if that means they also have um, a first language, which is Vietnamese, or a family language that is Vietnamese, that will be present in the rehearsal room. And again, I think in terms of that intracultural practice, that does, it is a, intracultural projects are quite, they do break down the hierarchy, because I think um, people don't try to mimic the center in the intracultural practice, because you're asking to, for everybody to bring <coughs> their unique personality, their unique cultural context, and therefore all those contexts are on the table, one's not necessarily working with the, only the context of the authority that you're working with. In a nutshell, that's yeah. it. <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> the, there's more actually I would like to ask you, but we'll come back to that, really about Philippe uh, Gollier 
uh, because I think if we, broadly speaking, a non-psychological approach to acting and a psychological approach to acting, I think it fits very much within the non-psychological. So I'd like to talk more about that a little bit later, if we could, Chrissy. Dean, could you speak about your approach to the craft, the methods and te techniques that have informed the way you teach acting? Sure. I mean, I think for me, um, acting is, is very simple. It's not always easy, but it's simple. And we need to find the, the simplest ways into the work that we can. Uh, the three things that I always look for are, is, uh, is, it, is the technique positive? Is it productive? Isn't it practical? Which means, is it positive as in, does it create a culture in the room of, of a healthy collaboration? Uh, is it practical? Can I use it right now? And then productive, can I play it forward and use it with different styles and directors? Um, for me, acting is dress-ups, really. Um, it's having fun. It's living the adventure of some other world, some other set of circumstances. I love when I see two actors on stage rehearsing a scene where they're tearing shreds off each other. The, the most toxic, dysfunctional hatred that's happening on stage, and they walk off and go, that was great. <laughs> you were great today. You screamed. You spat at me. I loved it. It was fantastic. Um, and I love that differentiation between the collaborators are engaging on that level and disengaging from the characters and the piece and then going, right, now we're going to engage with the characters and the piece and disengage again. That stepping in and out of and knowing that as actors where it's a thrill, it's an honour, it's a joy, no matter what the piece is. Um, and I'm very uh, aware that um, anything that drags the actor down or takes them into a place of too much self-reflection for me is not what we're, what we're there to do. And certainly you can't do it eight shows a week. You know? And we've, we've, we know too many stories of actors who've gone through hell in order to create, because at some point in their education they've collapsed anxiety and distress with creativity. And they can't create without those two things. And that's a very dangerous, very, very dangerous thing. Um, I was taught in the paradigm of uh, expert and then idiot. That's how I was taught. Uh, that was a lot of fun, you can imagine. Um, uh, so I was always chasing around to try and second guess what I needed to do next, and how I could stay in the game and how I could stay in the course because there was such fear and competition rife. Um, but when I direct something, I say to the cast at the beginning of the production, I don't know how this needs to be at the moment. Now, that would be a very dangerous statement to make to a cast of actors when you're directing them in the piece and they go, well, if you don't know, we certainly don't know what's going to happen next. But I say, I don't know how this piece needs to be, but I'll know it when I see it. And so straight away, we're all on the floor together, co-creators, co-collaborators, having fun. I can't sit behind a table if I'm directing. There's no, I can't do it. I, I can't have any <coughs> demarcation between myself and them. I'm at the edge of my seat, I'm watching, I'm up on the floor. And I love the fact that there's a great sense of thrill, there's a deep sense of inquiry, there's a fantastic sense of rigour, and our ultimate responsibility <coughs> is to the audience. You know, I interviewed Ian McKellen a number of years ago at, at Actors Centre, and uh, he was wonderful. And he said, um, he said, people spend a lot of money to come to the theatre. They have to get car parks and get babysitters and have a meal out. And he said, they go to a lot of trouble. And he looked across his glasses and said, the least we can do was our best. And I love that mm. feeling that we're only doing it for them, and it's a shared, transformative, potentially transformative experience. So anything in the classroom or the rehearsal room needs to ultimately honour the fact that there's something far greater than all of us 
that's at work here. Thank you, Dean. Um, I certainly heard a, a philosophy, a philosophical kind of um, perspective, um, an environment in which one would want to create for actors. But I'd like to talk more about technique. Christine, would you speak to me about how Philippe Gollier works and what that gave you as an actor, because you then went on to teach at his school. So I think that, um, to me, one of the most wonderful things about technique is it's constantly evolving. Nothing stays static. And somebody has been profoundly affected by something and then brings something else to the mix, and it moves in a kind of an ongoing direction or in another direction. So I'd really like to go back to that. Can you speak more about that work? I mean, certainly the work of complicité, le jeu, and I can't think of the French word, but for openness. You'll be better at that. What is that word? Uh, look, it's, I mean... So technique, I mean, mm. you know, it's technique or it's, um, it's, 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 it's a method, it's a process, yeah. a way of work. It's quite interesting. I think people find Philippe's method, um, it's hard to put technique on, it's hard to use the word technique, interestingly enough, on Philippe's process, I find. Um, mm. Because technique has sort of other implications. So in terms of the process, I mean, he really does start with, um, you know, simple games, like, you know, volleyball. Um, uh, but not, yeah, so volleyball or, um, you know, tag back games or any game which is also, though, it's not a game for a child in a playground, it's a game for an artist in a rehearsal room. So any game which is engendering a sort of, or, no, or pulling forth a sort of, um, you know, complicite. So if you yeah. and I are playing volleyball together, we have to be really complicit with each other um, to achieve a high score. And I know that that sounds very basic, but the, the process is then to um, show and articulate the pl simple pleasure and the complicite between the actors playing the volleyball, and then use that as a very tangible reference point this is what we are looking for when we go to improvisation and then when we go to text. So, you know, you, he might, you might be playing volleyball and then say, let's add a text in. And the minute the text comes, you will see that the actors start doing the text like that and there is no pleasure in the volleyball. So he's saying you need to hold the pleasure as yourself and do the text as the pleasure with yourself is there. So he preferences the pleasure and the engagement off the actor. So it's exactly like Dean said, when the actor goes off stage and they can say, oh God, weren't we good tonight? The actor is still completely engaged in that activity. They're not, they're not thinking, I was Juliet or I was someone else. They're totally engaged in their pleasure to do something you know, in a dress, in a death scene for an audience. So it's that engagement. But Philippe, I guess, forensically, teaches people how to do that. Mm -hmm. He does not say mm. it's a given. So it's not a given. And the thing about openness is, you know, this is what I found in my intracultural work. There are so many, many, many circumstances where I have been working with a British Vietnamese and look, Australian, you know, Aboriginal, um, Greek Australian, and they're doing, you know, a sort of, well, I don't know, something, a text, a, a Greek, anything. And the minute you ask them, to perhaps start to explore their own context within that and, you know, do it 
as they feel themselves a Greek Australian, whether it be with a language or a dialect, often you can see an openness and it's about recognizing where an actor can be open, where is the tool and the door for the actor to be open and capturing that and holding onto that with and for the actor right the way through rehearsals. So they don't keep closing and just going straight back to the source material, which is the text, which in so many occasions they feel they don't really have a proper relationship with. So for me, it's about bringing the text to the actor. It's not about the actor going out there to grasp that text, which they might think, actually, that's a Chekhov text. It's got nothing to do with me. Or I don't really know. But I know they do it here at STC, so I better know. But I don't know how to know. I sort of switch it and do it the other way around so that the text comes back to the, to the collaborative ensemble in the room. OK. Thank you, Christine. It's a process. It's a process. It's, it's hard to explain unless you see it. Mm. I, I guess because from a psychological perspective, if you could give the balance to, to, to a, a non-psychological perspective um, about how you approach a play yeah. from that perspective. I mean, the two questions that we always ask is what is going on here? What is going down here? And who is doing what to whom? So we're always looking for what is the quintessential detailed action. And I think any technique should allow the actor to understand how to inhabit and release recognisable human behaviour. Um, now, it's pretty, a bit radical, I know, but I believe, and many of the staff at ACA believe, that we never go into a person's emotional memory, we never go into a person's past, we never ask them if they've fallen in love. Um, we, we have a, a belief that everything the actor needs to know, they've learnt before the age of seven. So if we had a 17-year-old girl at a U2 concert and they're playing some torch song about unrequited love, and that girl had never had that experience, she would not be sitting in her seat with her arms crossed going, I don't get it. She, she knows loss. She understands loss. That's what the song's about. She'll be on her feet with the cigarette lighter in the air going like, oh my God, crying, and she's never ever experienced it before. So we, we go into a rehearsal room or a classroom knowing the actor, the human being, understands everything they'll ever need to know. They may not know how to get there yet, that's what the craft is about, but they actually get it. They've already got the DNA, the springboard for everything inside of them. So I, I think it's a reasonable thing to say that a lot of actors know what it's like to feel disconnected, to feel blocked, to not be able to identify with something. How do you work with actors under those conditions? Um, I think we, we find out what is... Um, interesting, when, I, when I've worked with Hugh Jackman, uh, he... He does something which, I don't know whether it came from me or whether, wherever it came from, but he always honours the character's values, what the character's value system is. And so he doesn't go into it emotionally, nor do I, uh, nor do we substitute any part of the actor's life onto the character. Uh, we don't engrave something onto them at all. We just go, what is this character standing for? Um, what's their purpose? What's their power? What are they up for? What do they need right now? And then that will start to... We never discuss really blocks or things like that because just through a series of practical, positive triggers, the actor starts to, to find instinctively the, the major human issues and challenges that Shakespeare's plays are all about. Loss, redemption, allegiance, victory, betrayal, passion. All of those things. We, we, we know those things instinctively. Interestingly, you can go to any tribe in the world 
um, without language, they would have a click or a sound for all of those major emotional issues in our lives mm. without even having to experience them before. So we plug into a, 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 an instinctive or intuitive human awareness about this. And if the person still is at a loss, we just use the what if. Okay. At, um just so, is there a compatibility between a psychological and a non-psychological approach to acting? For example, at NIDA, Stanislavski, the methods of Stanislavski and the work that you're talking about that you now kind of bring into the room, which I guess if it goes back, it goes back in a way to Lecoq because Philippe studied with Lecoq, so there's a kind of lineage there. Um, how do those two complement each other? Because what Dean was just talking about, just actually stepping through what a character wants, um, you know, words like objectives, and then there are obstacles in the way, and just actually how to kind of mine um, the text for that kind of uh, information. Do you see a complement between these two? Or is this a source of... Look, if I'm being perfectly honest... <laughs> we I like actually, honesty. I, I, if I'm being perfectly honest, I think they're quite different. And I think... Um, and... I mean, look, we do have this conversation at night of the whole time about, you know, should we be, in a way, as a foundation, giving the students one foundation, um, you know, so that they can, you know, whether they agree with it or not, so that they can anchor themselves to something and from that anchor make their own comparisons? Um, or should we giving, be giving them a range? And, it, it, look, I think it's really tricky and I think in a way we haven't yet solved that because you know our students do get confused and it is quite difficult for them I mean in fact you might be really want to talk about this and and there's a lot of anxiety around this confusion because you know the students are so keen to get it right and end gain and you know think that they've absolutely made it by the end of their first year to get in the second year and then to the third year and in a way to take them slowly and just say, look, it's a much more, um, you know, you, 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 you can't do that with this. You know, you're an artist, it doesn't have a straight line. But, but the, the, the sort of different approaches, I think, do confuse. And I guess if I'm being completely honest, hand on heart, um, you know, I'm teaching something that I completely believe in, so it's very difficult for me to actually uh, teach something else. <laughs> so in a way, I guess if I had it my way, I'd sort of say, look, why don't we just do, you know, Philippe Gaulier stuff at NIDA? <laughs> I, I, if I, you know, don't repeat that, but... Uh, <laughs> this is being filmed. <laughs> I, guess, I guess, really, that's, that's probably, that, you know, because it's, it's hard, because, you know, you, you really believe in something and what to do. <laughs> I'd like to, um, a colleague of mine and indeed Dean's, Elizabeth Kemp, uh, I s asked her just to kind of speak about something about emotional memory, which was certainly contentious between Stella Adler and Lee Strasberg, and to this day, I think, has a kind of a, um, you know, a degree of kind of discussion around it. Um, I think she explains it for me really clearly and in a way that's absolutely usable, workable, and how it applies. Even though I didn't train in this way, personally, I see the value of it, and I'd like us to have a little look at the clip. She did it in her apartment in New York for us. Thanks, Liam. Hi, my name is Elizabeth Kemp. I'm Associate Artistic Director of the Actors Studio. On the Board of Directors of the Actors Studio and Chair of the IG Department in the Master's Degree Program of the Actors Studio Dominique. I've been a member of the Actors Studio for over 30 years. Um, and uh, I was introduced to them 
by being first cast in a play with an actor's studio director. Um, without studying it initially, but being thrown into the way in which people work, I was uh, blessed to have that opportunity of suddenly learning how to make something real. And the director came to me and said, you know, with the last scene, you don't seem to have any kind of um, response to the fact that this man has been shot and he's dying in your arms. And he took me through something called an effective memory. And at the time, I had, I had experienced the loss of someone, my grandfather, who was dropped dead at my feet. And he tried to take me through an exercise. Well, he did take me through it. It's just that whatever he was trying to connect me to uh, was not available. <clears throat> and I believe it wasn't available because it wasn't ready to be shared. It wasn't ready to be uh, um, integrated into any kind of art form because it was still in that place where it had to be kept hidden in my psyche until it had processed enough to, to, to in any way be offered in some form related to love. Um, then he asked me about a, a loss of a, a pet. And it's very interesting because the loss of a pet was a school bus ran over my dog. And I remember quite distinctly the smell and, of the morning on the country road waiting for the school bus and for, for getting on the bus and then my, my Labrador retriever that would run after the bus and chase the bus and bark. And on this particular morning, the bus and the bus driver would always curse the dog, and I heard this boom. And I knew that the bus had gone over the dog, but I didn't look back. Then, when I came home that day and went up the country road, and I put my, I found someone had dragged the, the dog up, and it was lying in my yard in a burlap sack. And I, and I touched it, and I could feel the shape of the dog. Now, this wasn't any memory that had been uh, earth-shattering in terms of having any repercussions. I had given a proper burial to the dog with my parents and mourned the dog. And, um, but there was something about synchronizing and, and, and the fusion of in the scene where a gunshot goes off. It's an old play with petrified words. Um, and the boom of the bus and the tweed jacket of the man dying in my arms that corresponded with the, the feeling of that burlap bag. And it, it was a very beautiful homage to, to my sweet dog and, and also a way for me to, in a very truthful way, connect to the experience of loss. Now, I was 17 years old at the time, I believe, and uh, it was a great gift for Great. Thank you very much indeed. Um, there's something else about the idea of, about acting. Is it imaginative? Do you use one's personal life? And do those two ever come together? And is there something dangerous? We've been asked just to talk briefly about, I was asked to actually address, are there techniques that can be dangerous to the well-being of an actor? And there is an acting teacher called Ivana Chubbuck who's written a book called The Power of the Actor. She very, very straight up, absolutely, 
uh, is open to working with an actor's pain in their own personal life at, the uh, life at the deepest level, we also have a clip from her, if you wouldn't mind. Thank you. About talking about this issue. Is it dangerous? Just um, feel the pain of your past or feel the pain of what you're going through right now, then yeah, it can stick to you like glue. And then it becomes really uncomfortable. But my technique, what we do is take the pain and take the trauma and as opposed to using it as something that we're letting fester inside our systems and, and therefore become a victim by that information that has happened to you, we use this, uh, the pain and the trauma of your life to empower uh, and fuel a goal to overcome and win. What happens with people is that everybody has a, a road in life. Everybody feels pain. Everybody has trauma, some larger than others, right? But what happens is that what, how you deal with that information makes a difference between a dynamic person and a person that is a victim of life. They're letting the information victimize themselves. And if you, and this is, this, this is the, the, the road that people have a choice to make. Um, the road of least resistance is the road of accepting that information and saying this is just the way it's going to be and it's going to hurt and I'm going to be in a lot of pain. But the people that um, are, are most effective in life are the people that overcome um, their tragedies, are people that take the path of most resistance, which is um, conflicted, there's a lot of obstacles in it. Um, it's a path that's filled with rocks and there's rain and there's branches breaking into your face and, 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 and possible you know, um, hurt from snakes or, or, or spiders or cougars. But at the end of that journey, you get to the other side of that, it becomes a very satisfying um, uh, end result because you've gotten to the other side. So you take that information into your acting and you say, okay, I could sit with all this pain and all this, uh, the, the tragedy of my personal life, and you're gonna do what human beings do all over the world, which is just sit with it, let it fester, and therefore make themselves miserable. But if you take that information, it's what the people have done, it's like, you know, since the beginning of like great artists, um, writers, uh, and, and musicians have taken their pain. Look at Beethoven, he was, he was deaf and did his best music at the time that he was deaf because he used that tragedy. He used that to fuel his need to overcome and win and create something wonderful. Um, there's a book that just came out called uh, Gabriel, and it's about this man's child who died at 22 years old of, of a drug overdose. He wrote this book 
And it wasn't, if you say, okay, well, he, look at all the tragedy that he, he shouldn't have used that because it's too personal. He couldn't use it. It's, it's dangerous to use that stuff. But it wasn't. The ultimate, not only on the other side of it, he said in his own words, it was a healing process. It helped him heal. It helped, it helped him create catharsis and be able to deal with, what, which, which is probably the worst tragedies a human being can ever have, which is to lose a child. And, and, and also creating a reality where there are all those people out there that have experienced similar tragedies feel that not, you don't have to sit with the pain, but someone you can actually create with pain gives people hope on the other side of all that. The one thing that I have to say that I think is really important is that there's a lot of acting techniques out there. And it's all very personal, like finding the kind of therapy that you find is, that works for you. I'm not saying my way of working is the only way of working, because it's not. Whatever resonates with you is the right way to go. But I'm here to just clarify that the most important thing, that using your personal life is not only not a dangerous way to go, but it actually is very healthy, it's cathartic, and finally, it's very, very empowering. And so, finally, I'd like to say, it's up to you to make a choice of what kind of technique best works for you. But what's most important is that you feel, at the end of the day, that you're living a part, feeling that part, and helping other people and communicating with other people to be able to, be, to feel that they um, are, are having an experience of, of a bigger nature than just a simple plot. That's your job as an actor. Um, it's uh, my job as a coach to be able to explore all the, 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 the definitions, the, the, the minutia of what makes a human being. And what makes a human being is all those little details that, that create the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> Ian, I think it's a really nice segue to you at this point, just about the kind of research and the studies that you've been doing. Okay, so, so I, I need to shout out to Mark Seaton, who's in the audience there as well. Um, we've embarked on a research project um, to which we were directed partly by Mark's earlier work, but also by the Equity Foundation, who came to us and said, um, we're aware of a lot of actors in personal difficulty. Uh, I think the, the exact phrase is going to a lot of funerals. So we were invited to uh, investigate actors' well-being. So in some ways, within the rubric of technique, uh, I think we're looking at uh, techniques for actors being not just in the studio, in this rather privileged realm, but actually actors in their lives. Um, so, so we, some of you may have answered this survey, we advertised it last year. We've closed the survey and we're in the process of writing up the results at the moment. Uh, we've also been working with a psychologist, uh, Mariana Zabo, from the University of Sydney. We had about 800 responses to the survey, and I, I just wanted to touch on a, a couple of, of key findings that we've had, which I think, think go to this question of technique. We asked actors uh, a range of questions about how much they earn, where they trained, etc. But, but the, the one that I wanted to investigate today, or share with you today, was we asked actors whether they warmed up and how rigorously they went about warm-up routines. 
And what we discovered is most actors have a very clear sense of a technique for warming up, for engaging forward into the work. We then asked what they did to, to come out of work, the, the warm down, and we got a terrifyingly low figure for, for that. And we asked then, so what do you do to, to come down after work? And I think probably everyone could guess what, what they did. <laughs> we, we go out for a drink. Or I go home and have a drink. But alcohol it was, was um, it, it was alcohol. That's, that's what people were doing to disengage from this kind of stuff to actually being in the world. And, and of course, you know, I, I can feel Dean fuming about this clip because it kind of assumes that all actors live in this wonderful perpetual state of being engaged in the studio and, and that they have a, a choice. You know, I think the choices are much less obvious than that makes it appear. We also know from our survey that actors earn very little money, uh, that they are frequently unemployed, they're frequently um, thrown back onto their own personal resources. Um, we, we also administered as part of the survey uh, a, a validated psychometric test called an audit, alcohol use something. <laughs> and the psychologist, our colleague, when she came back to our office to, to share the results, was actually kind of pale with shock. She said, on this survey, this population is consuming uh, dangerous levels of alcohol. So that there's actually, we sort of have a scientifically rigorous finding that this is a high risk. Uh, I think the expression was using alcohol at dangerous levels. So we're very interested by that. We'll um, follow that up as we write up the results. We also asked about what training actors received um, on, on a range of things in, in the course of their training. So we asked, did, did they receive training on financial management, for example? Uh, we asked whether they had received training on um, maintaining a healthy lifestyle and on maintaining relationships with people in their, their worlds. And of course we found that very little training is actually addressed to those kind of techniques as well. Um, I, 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 there's <laughs> a mass of data. W what I will say is that we'll be publishing this up as a full report in about June next year and we will of course alert equity to to that publication. It will actually come out as, as part of a journal edition that of a journal that my department publishes called About Performance, which is a, this particular article will be called The Lives of Actors. And we've solicited a range of writings from around the world, people actually coming at this, this question of, of the lives of actors, not just the studio techniques, but perhaps we could say the, the techniques for living of, of people who choose to enter this extraordinary way of being in the world, uh, how they actually maintain themselves beyond this kind of fantasy. Sorry, I shouldn't be too prejudicial about it, but you know, it, it strikes me that not much of an actor's life is actually about the scene that's being described there. Sorry, I don't think I understand. Could you say that again, Ian? I, I don't think actually, going on the results we've looked at, I don't think that a great deal of an actor's life, from cradle to grave, is actually about this privileged site of, of exploration and freedom to choose. I, I think what one of the things we're finding is that they're really hard lives where people are frequently isolated, uh, suffer from enormous levels of, of stress in the workplace, which is then carried back into their their family situations. Uh, I don't want to go on too much, but you know, we also asked whether people uh, had suffered uh, debilitating anxieties, and actors are saying yes, yes. And we asked about, um, physical harm they've come to and problems with their voice mm. and 
looking at the implications of the kind of soldier-on mentality. Um, and also, you know, a lot of Mark's work in the past has been about the demand, frequently placed demand on actors to be open and to make themselves vulnerable and how if they don't have other kinds of life system support things in place, uh, make them very vulnerable populations. So I, I guess that's kind of what I want to float out there. I, I just actually yep. just want to say something because in case it has been misunderstood, I don't think it's some kind of rarefied notion life, what she's expressing, for me, what she's actually expressing is saying, we are human beings with enormous dimension, with enormous experience, and that experience can be actually utilised in our work in a dynamic way, in a very healthy way, and in a way that actually could be as the byproduct, as the byproduct, not as the purpose, cathartic okay, yeah. for the actual artists well, well, themselves. Well, I guess what I'm interested in is the way that she framed it as a, as a kind of pure choice that you have as, a, as an actor. And, and I guess, and it's what we are talking about before the session, the next phase of our study will actually want to go and talk to actors and, and ask them about what led you into this field so we can actually work out what kind of people might choose to embark upon these kind of risks. Mm. I, guess, I guess my reservation is just that what is presented there is a very clear-cut choice. You either handle it or you don't. Sort of. Um, I, I actually I, I don't think that's what she's saying, but anyway, just going on, because I'd love to yeah, get back to you yeah, shortly, sure. Dean, if I could. Yeah, sure. Just about, um, and then we'll ask some questions, your relationship between the actor, the text, and character. Christine's very clear, I think. Is that reasonable to say, Christine, that character is something that is not at the forefront of your work when you work, yeah, in this process of work? Can you speak about that? And, and who, which teachers, which methods of work, specifically is it the work of Stanislavski, Michael Chekhov, Laban, Viola Spolin, these are all the processes in the Actors Lab at the Actors Centre. Can you just talk about in reference to methodology? Sure. I mean, I think that um, there's no... what I'll get to that probably later, what concerns me about that. But um, there's no recipes in acting. There's only strategies. And there's no, you know, uh, panacea cure-all. Um, because if you go out with a recipe, then you're going to find people who don't understand that recipe and don't work that way at all, and directors who don't work that way. But um, Michael Chekhov, Benedetti, Keith Johnston, uh, Viola Spolin, Uta Hagen, these are yeah. all people that we've, um, we, we honour uh, and believe in. Yeah. Um, but um, I think, once again, it all comes down to what uh, allows the actor to uh, inhabit and release recognisable human behaviour um, to honour the work, to honour the, the audience. That's the ultimate objective. And so um, the text, we, we, we very rarely even talk about objectives, which I know sounds very, very odd. But we talk about what is going on in this moment because most, many times the character has no idea what their objective is. Mm. They have no idea. They're just dealing with it moment by moment and those moments go into a beat. So we very much use the Benedetti beat system and we go, there's a unit of action. There's an arc of energy that's gone from, a, has a beginning, a middle and a sustainable ending. And from that, the next beat is inevitable. And we find those natural occurring um, ryth rhythmic uh, line through the piece and the actors then find themselves like a score coming to life because they're being played by the text. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Thank you very much for that.
Media Super is the principal sponsor of the Equity Foundation. For more information about the work of the Foundation, visit equityfoundation.org.au or follow Australian Actors' Equity on Facebook and Twitter.